0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Eleanor Marx, a Biography, by Yvonne Kapp, with a preface by Sally Alexander. Eleanor Marx is one of the most tragically overlooked radical figures in history, usually overshadowed by her father, Carl. But... Not only did she edit, translate, transcribe, and collaborate with her father, she also led an extraordinary life as a labor organizer, trade unionist, translator, actor, writer, and feminist. Much of this we only know because of this highly acclaimed, outstanding exception to the omission of Eleanor Marx from history. Yvonne Kapp's biography was first published at the height of feminist organizing in the 1970s. Cap brilliantly succeeds in capturing Eleanor's spirit, from a lively child opining on the world's affairs, to the new woman aspiring to the stage, earning her living as a free intellectual, and helping to lead England's unskilled workers at the height of the new unionism. She was always more than, yet at the same time inescapably, Karl Marx's daughter. It is also, inevitably. An unrivaled biography of the Marx household in Victorian London, of the Marx Circle, and of Frederick Ingalls, the family's extraordinary mentor. Eleanor Marx, a biography by Yvonne Kapp. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Very serious people in Washington are easily seduced by vapid and self-serving accounts of their own savvy operation of the machinery of government. Books like Bob Woodward's latest exercise in long-form stenography, Fear, Trump in the White House. Many journalists are serious people, too. And so unsurprisingly, they like Woodward's book. As my returning guest Patrick Blanchfield argues, Woodward's books are in essence an extended rendition of their own everyday craft, a form of journalism that venerates power while obscuring its operation. Fear, according to Blanchfield's review in N1, condemns Trump based on stories told to him by the very people who have made his reign of terror an administrative reality. Sources whose stories Woodward, with neither skepticism nor cooperation, uses to transform the White House into the site of a struggle between noble public servants and a mad king who would otherwise be unleashing disaster. The fact that Trump has already unleashed disaster doesn't much concern Woodward. What bothers him is that Trump... Incurious about this country's divinely ordained geostrategic needs and contemptuous of the national security state's hallowed traditions isn't serious enough to be commander-in-chief. The problem with Trump, for defenders of the establishment political order who helped make his presidency possible, is precisely that he's not a man like John McCain. The bloodthirsty and world-historically successful self-mythologizer whose obituary Blanchfield recently penned for the baffler... We are going to be talking about both pieces. Before we get started, today I'm kicking off our fall fundraising drive. Our goal is to reach 1,500 supporters at patreon.com slash thedig by year's end. If you listen to this podcast, please support us and help me pay for my life, for the critical labor performed by my producer Alex Lewis and communications coordinator Logan Dreher, and for all sorts of overhead that the show requires, and that costs money. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more a month, and I've got a bunch of left-wing books to mail to your door. And so please, if you like this show, support us with what you can at p a t r. Okay, here's Patrick Blanchfield, a writer and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book about gun control and gun violence, entitled Gun Power, Breaking the Cycle of 500 Years of American Violence, is out from Verso sometime next year. Patrick Blanchfield, our official meta-correspondent of the Trump Show correspondence. Welcome back to The Dig.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: First, how do you read and digest books like this so fast? I would need drugs to work at your pace.
1: Nothing harder or stronger than lots of tea. I'm a little too old for, uh, for, for anything more potent than that. Um, though I, I will say... Th- yeah, like in terms of like how I'm doing this, like these books are not particularly challenging or difficult, right? I mean, they're just more of a, it's, it's, a, it's an ascesis, it's a torture. The real ingredient is masochism. Um, and, you know, this is what you, I used to have to do in grad school. So reading books very quickly and then damning them is not an entirely, or praising <laughs> some of them is not an entirely unfamiliar exercise.
0: Before we dive into the details, lay out what this Bob Woodward book, Fear, Trump in the White House, what it is, like what, it, what it's about and what it is as a spectacle. And also explain the title. Who is afraid of what?
1: The book is a 350 page odd um, glimpse into essentially the first year plus of the Trump administration. Um, so in two, so first it's recognizably part of um, this genre of like inside the Trump White House books that have been very popular for the past year and a half for understandable reasons. And also it's the latest installment in uh, Bob
0: Woodward's
1: ongoing over of very serious, very thick books that are based upon interviews with people in the white, in various presidential administrations, shedding light on on what happens behind closed doors. And he did four of them on Bush and, very correct, correctly, at least one, if not two, on Obama. All told, the man has generated something on the order of 18 books, um, and about half of those have happened, or have been books like this, which are essentially long-form dives in what's going on behind the scenes in a presidency and that are published as that presidency is ongoing. So it's it's somewhere between the line of, of um, course, people like claim that he's, you know, gold seal, long-form journalism, which isn't quite correct, I think, but it's somewhere between that and contemporary history. It sort of has the, birth, both, the worst of both those features, but we can I'll get more normative in a second. As for the question of fear uh, and why the title, it's a quote from Trump, um, and it's uh, in an interview that he gave in 2016 with Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. Um and i if memory serves is in the context of talking about realpolitik and like how we 're going to deal with difficult challenges in the world, Bob, Woodson, Bob, Bob Bob forgive me Bob Woodward really cares about um confusing Bob with his uh much better half of the post um Woodward really cares about issues of national security, and so this quote of which is trump basically saying real power is i don 't even want to use the word fear' sort of taps it it offers a nice single word vignette. Uh, to, and that encompasses both Trump and his most fearsome, which is, you know, the foreign policy domain, which, again, Woodward fetishizes, and also has a kind of like thuggish straightforwardness that makes the book sexy for a best-selling audience. And I'm sure it's going to make – I'm sure if Bob Woodward has a mortgage on, you know, his third or fourth of the country home, or whatever the hell this is going to support, he'll he'll do pretty well on that.
0: This book, as you just explained, is about the president while he's presidenting, and that's, sadly enough, Woodward's beat His books about Bush included Bush at War, which, if I remember correctly, I didn't read it, but if I remember hearing about it at the time, it was a serious snow job that celebrated our former warmonger-in-chief as, you know, this courageous, serious decider guy. So the Bush book, if I remember correctly, was a hagiography. Maybe later on he writes a, a condemnation of him as the political current shift. I don't... I don't know. But but people aren't reading this book about Trump because it flatters Trump because it doesn't flatter Trump at all. But the the connective tissue here is all of the right wing sociopaths inside the administration who he lauds and rehabilitates, which is Woodward's secret sauce, maybe maybe even his Szechuan sauce.
1: The analogy between this and like mass-produced, ec- like extruded journalism is probably the way to like look at this in some ways. Like imagine, like if you were a kid and you had one of those little Play-Doh things and you would feed this giant hunk of shit through like a little pattern that would then s- squeeze out like you know s- sausage that you couldn't eat. Um, Woodward has multiple books where, and, and you're right. I think there are actually three, if not four, books that are about Bush's foreign policy and war making. Right? I think there's Plan of Attack. Bush at War, State of Denial, and then there's another one uh, called War Within, but one of those books is also about domestic matters. And then he's got two books on Obama, one of which is about Obama and war, and the other which I think is about Obama and uh, other like domestic political considerations. Um, both those books b- – well, b- you, you can see right there, like this is part of the tell, right – the big through line is commander-in-chiefing through war. Like, that's part of what, like, Bob Woodward really is interested in this. It makes for a very sexy copy. uh, And it also generates the need for what this book is, which is, as you correctly have observed, and this gets to the question of method, which I'm glad we're just going to get right into. Woodward's method is essentially, uh, he he refers to it all as deep background, right? So he talks to people, he likes the phrase principles the principal players in meetings um, and he collects their narratives of what they said happened again behind serious decision making like, there's an entire implicit theory of politics here which is all about individual powerful actors having meetings that's how you know that they have to be serious I'm not the only person to observe this but like it's definitely a Bob Woodward book because every single thing like, and then they had a meeting here and then there was a meeting on the Potomac and all that <laughs> stuff right um, and everyone just tells him their stories of what happened and this, the Bush books were much the same. I, I, I've read, uh, I think I listened, on, I listened to one back on, like, in the early days of like Amazon audiobooks or something. So it was like 10, 12 years ago now. I remember re- listening to one of the Bush at War once back when I had a very different sort of political set of convictions and thought this would give me some degree of insight. It was horribly boring. Like, seriously, it's just uh, like, and then people have meetings. Like, everyone is always jogging. Everyone is having meetings. Um, it's very much like, like, if you were to just to, like, cut out the dialogue of West Wing, like, Walk and talks, or like those weird scene-setting, like pans of of like the, the like benches on the Potomac in the House of Cards. That's like the, the the Woodward books are full of this. Like, and then they meet here, and then people meet here, and then so and so is called. It's a lot of like blocking of people moving around um, while they make decisions, right? But then, of course, the secret sauce, right? Uh, this sort of like numbing in this cognitive way um, is people who the principles in these meetings. Are generally the last and only authorities on what happened in those meetings, right? So they will give narratives to Woodward, um, which are suspect, uh, suspected. we can talk more about the ways in which they're suspect. But then, what Woodward largely reproduces them in whole cloth. So this is why I wouldn't even say this is necessarily journalism in the best sense, because like in a lot of these meetings, the only only one person is ta- who was there is talking to Woodward about what happened. And there's no one else involved to who's willing to talk to him to corroborate anything.
0: And, and you write right? that you write that Woodward loves snitches, basically. And Joan Didion pointed just that out in the a, in a searing 1996 essay on his work, which you quoted from, quote, as any prosecutor and surely Mr. Woodward knows, the person on the inside who calls and says, I want to talk, is an informant or snitch and is generally looking to bargain a deal to improve his or her own situation, to place the blame on someone else in return for being allowed to plead down or out certain charges. Because the story told by a criminal or civil informant is understood to be colored by self-interest, the informant knows that his or her testimony will be unrespected, even reviled, subjected to rigorous examination, and often rejected. The informant who talks to Mr. Woodward, on the other hand, knows that his or her testimony will be not only respected, but burnished into the inside story. Which is why so many people on the inside, notably those who consider themselves the professionals or managers of the process, assistant secretaries, deputy advisors, players of the game, aides who intend to survive past the tenure of the patron they are prepared to portray as hapless, do want to talk to him. What service does Woodward provide to these sources? And... How does that distort public perception of what's actually happening inside the White House?
1: I, should, I, should just, I want to really enthusiastically plug Didion's essay there, which she wrote in like 1996, and is and she, she's not even dealing with the war books, right? She's just dealing with some histories of the of, of like contemporaneous politics, so the Clintons, etc. In 96,
0: she, people have been on notice that Woodward is a joke since for more than two decades.
1: <laughs> and it's. Like the phrase she uses is um, that he he lacks the ability to perform cognitive exertion, or he has a disinclination to exert cognitive <laughs> energy, um, and that's and that's sort of the function, right? Like, you know, I hate comparing like oneself to a prosecutor, right? Or you know, like I always that always keeps me out, but like if, if we if, if we were to if we run with her um, with her invocation of like snitching and or, like or, or, or like courtroom drama, right? Like people would give narratives, and then there would be some sort of veridical process for testing those narratives, right, um, for making sure that they're factually accurate. But also, again, if we were in a rigorous courtroom or, like, you know, interrogation session or whatever the hell, um, there would also be considerations of the individual interests of the people who were testifying, what their motivations might be, Right. Uh and the question and answer session with them would be something other than just tell me what happened. It it would be there would be some degree of pushback. Woodward the service Woodward provides, and in this way he's he's both emblematic in, in a very unique way, but also representative in a very boring one, is he best basically allows powerful people to tell him what happened in various sessions of a of, of space of time? Who has responsibility for what decision? What was their role in the process? What did they want to see happen? How would they have preferred things to turn out? Um, and then he'll just reproduce that. Without doing much in the way of that veridical fact-checking, right? Or at least with that, and also very obviously, without do without ever in any way that he ever communicates to us as the audience or jury or whatever you want to use in this analogy, those concerns about ulterior motives or um, contradictory features of what people are saying, right? So it, it's very interesting because, like, Woodward, Woodward has all this tremendous access, and he has tremendous credibility. But then you look in the back of the book, like the source notes, and most of these chapters have somewhere between three and, you know, a dozen um, little notes. They're not marked in the text. You have to go to the page numbers where he'll like tie a quote about a meeting to a source, right? And his sources here are for information that's almost exclusively already in the public record. Right. So, so it's never like I have a do- on a couple case- occasions he shows a document saying, you know, this is a memo that was competent talked about. He does that very signally in the beginning, right? But most of the time it's just being public it's The public, information that's already publicly available, being like, oh, here's a news story that was released that prompted this meeting, and then he links to it. Or this is we, this is how we know this meeting happened, right? And then and then on top of it it says in this, the sentence used most in the in the book, the information in this chapter comes primarily from multiple deep background interviews with first hand sources. I'd say a good third of the book is one-on-one conversations between individuals and Trump. And Trump did not speak to Woodward. So what we basically have instead are – actually one-third or two-thirds of the book are basically narratives of people talking about what they told Trump and how they told Trump to behave and how Trump reacted about this and that. And I I can't tell you – that. I mean it's hard. I don't want to be like cattily simplistic here. These people who are giving him these stories, in every single story, they come across as the most intelligent, the most sophisticated, the most morally like rigorous, right? Voices of reason, voices of seriousness. Uh, and they have Trump saying things that literally read like bad fan fiction. I I, I know this sounds like incredibly harsh and basic, but like these stories are so clearly full of – so many of them are so clearly full of shit and so clearly about burnishing the legacy of people who have left the White House in disgrace or who want to make certain gestures towards – you know their continued employability. So, for example, Lindsey Graham shows up for a good you know quarter of the book. He's one of the major sources, uh, and he's obviously not left the White House on record. Yeah, on on record. Well, it's 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 he must. He, he's not like he, at no point does Woodward use the first person to say. And then Lindsey Graham told me, right? Instead, we just have these sections of Lindsey Graham talking in the first person, right? Uh, or like this, like this, this like. Indirect narration where we're on the golf course with just Trump and Lindsey Graham. Now, either Woodward talked to the caddy, which I highly fucking doubt, or he's just reproducing what, what, what Lindsey Graham told him. And, 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 and he uses quote marks to indicate stuff that's quotes that are coming from a firsthand principle, again, this idea of principles. There's, there's, we can talk more of the simplistic ideology that these are players. Right. That that what's happening in politics is really the work of is the output of court uh, of like courtly drama intrigues or like battles between Greek demigods. that All these individuals are having these back and forth. Right. But every single but, but, but they have different motives. Right. So You read Lindsey Graham and Lindsey Graham in every single section sounds like he's a ideal, perfect Republican. Right. So, And like and this is something that's crazy, too, because in a lot of these meetings, again, it's, it's Lindsey Graham giving us this information here.
0: Lindsey Graham, who went from a somewhat outspoken critic of Trump to one of his staunchest defenders in the U.S. Senate in pretty short order.
1: Exactly. So, so, so this is their first meeting in the Oval Office. It's just the two of them. Right. That's what I can tell. I was going to read you a little bit, so I want to give you some of the more toxic stuff in a second. Trump jumped up, moved swiftly towards Graham, and gave him a big hug. We've got to be friends, Trump said. You're going to be my friend. (laughs) Yes, sir, Graham replied. I want to be your friend. Trump said he shouldn't have publicly given out Graham's cell phone number, which happened during the campaign. That was the highlight of my campaign, Graham joked. What's your new number? Trump asked. He wrote it down as a joke. And then, then Graham says, it was, a, it was a contest. You know I never got any traction. I couldn't get it on the big stage. Now you won. I'm humbled by being beat, and I accept your victory. He knew this was what Trump wanted to hear. Do you want me to help you? Then later, when, when the question of war becomes more and more present as an actual concern, here's, here's Graham Again, in a meeting where there are a couple other people, but because the quotes are coming from Graham's mouth, we have a good it, – it, it's extremely reasonable to assume Graham is the source of this, right? Graham says, do you want on your resume that you allowed Afghanistan to go back into the darkness and the second 9-11 came from the very first place that the 9-11 did? <laughs> and then, well, Trump asked, how does this end? Right again, like, it, just trying to imagine Trump asking like a legitimate question, like like, like it was very dubious. And then what Lindsey Graham says, "Okay, this is all in quotes. It never ends." Graham said, "It's good versus evil. Good versus evil never ends. It's just like the Nazis. It's now radical Islam. It will be something else one day. So our goal is to make sure the homeland never gets attacked from Afghanistan. Look at the thousands of extra troops as insurance policy against another 9/11. Listen to your. It, it, it's just like."
0: And that's so that that's the establishment voice of national security reason lecturing, educating the infantile child president precisely. in as represented by the national security state voice of wisdom. This is how they want to be perceived as saying stuff like that
1: that's precisely right that that's exactly what the situation uh like. It's it's the audience here. It's a very interesting like thing to unpack. The audience, right? Because on the one hand, this is this person telling this to Woodward, and Woodward's like, oh, "Okay, that sounds plausible." Of course, Trump like was very like accepting of your criticism, like seriously, as, as though he actually would be. But then also, it's a putative audience of, I presume, centrists, uh, self-identified right-leaning liberals, but above all, the Republican establishment. And Lindsey Graham is here signaling, "I'm the reasonable one." I continue to stay on brand. I shake Trump on our consistent message, right, and you get similar stuff from
0: this is like this this is this is kind of like the uh, that scandalous New York Times op ed by the anonymous senior administration official uh, providing the same sort of service for themselves, albeit with less mediation in that case.
1: A giant like bingo bell, I'd slam it right. I was like, like, I was on the Gong Show at that point. Like that's exactly what this is, right? And then it's all here, here's another one. Here's Kellyanne Conway in a conversation where there may be a couple other people in the room, but they're not named. So presumably, or, or it's extremely likely again that this is coming directly from Kellyanne Conway to Trump. Do you think you can run this thing? This is during the campaign because part of the book takes place in the campaign, and he's referring to the campaign. Trump asked, "What is this thing?" She asked, "I'm running this photo shoot." The campaign, Trump said, the whole thing. Are you willing to not see your kids for a few months? She agreed. On, she accepts on the spot. Sir, again, in quotes, I can do that for you. You can win this race. I do not consider myself your peer. I will never address you by your first name. And, and again, like, it's extremely plausible. It's highly likely, I, I bet money on it, that Kellyanne Conway is quite possibly the source for this stuff to Woodward. Right, maybe with someone else in the room, but with with Lindsey Graham being equally servile, it's definitely Lindsey Graham being the source. So you have to wonder what particular type of show of submission and like sh- like willing servility is Woodward willing to like to just countenance and reproduce in Toto? without questioning, well, why why, why exactly would Lindsey Graham want to come across like a simpering piece of shit to me? Like, is there a reason for this? He doesn't ask that question. He just reproduces it as what happens. And then you have, and then he sticks a note or two in the back saying that this came from an important source. And that should be enough, because it's Bob Woodward. Um, and of course, like, look, these people are on brand. I have no doubt at at the fact that Lindsey Graham wants war forever, and Kellyanne Conway is willing to do anything practically for this person that she works for, uh, in, because she wants a long-term job and, and as a GOP fixer. Um, but there are other people who he relies upon, who can who can be trusted. I think even less, and who have much more like idiosyncratic motives. So, like a good third of the book, I'd argue, is probably is probably sourced to Steve Bannon, Ooh. right? And Steve Bannon is hardly a credible broker of fact.
0: Given the credulity with which Woodward treats all of these sources with a self-interest in being deceptive, it's troubling that such a big audience for this book is is journalists. But you argue that a key as to why political journalists love the book so much is because the books are really just an extended and overwrought version of what the White House press corps does every day. Well, what does What does Woodward tell us about Maggie Haberman and company.
1: Maggie Haberman's work, so, I, so, he, so he explicitly cites certain stories, because one of the major things that happens is a story breaks, the White House responds, right? Um, and it, I, I should say also, by the way, that his major source for all that period is, is uh, Rob Porter, the um, alleged wife beater, and uh, who left under a cloud of disgrace. Uh, after about a year with Trump, and again, whose departure Woodward literally only notes on like the last 15 pages in a single paragraph, right? So again, this is talk about like, it's not just that he fails to interrogate relevant information. It's that when questions of motives or personal credibility arise, he he literally sticks them right at the very end, and it's almost offhand, right? Uh, So he has that function too, which is again, part of the So we want to read, like, how is Woodward emblematic or symptomatic? He's got the best Rolodex of anyone in D.C. for talking with powerful, with quote-unquote principles. And I I mean, (laughs) principles without the, not the LES, but the ALS kind, right? Like, the key players, they will all talk to him because they know he'll reproduce basically whatever messaging point they want to say, um, and uh, that'll just be what the record will show with Bob Woodward's credibility on it. Um, and oftentimes that's because they want to continue new careers, or oftentimes they're working on, like, inserting that they're still relevant, right? I mean, like, it's, Steve Bannon apparently needs to, in order to pay his bill, Steve Bannon, I guess, needs to keep showing up as, like, the as the insider for liberals in the Trump administration for some reason. Um, but that, what, what this suggests is that a lot of journalism just involves going to, a lot of what passes for respectable journalism just involves going to people who are, Implicated in making awful decisions, listening to their rationale, and then just—or not even a rationale—listening to like their account of how things happened, and then presenting that as the God's honest truth without pushing back in any way. Um, and that's—I mean—that's—it's pretty striking. And I mean, like, it, it, it's interesting because like the earlier Woodward books, the a lot of the Bush books, like they're. It it should be a a hint as to the fact that Bush needed four or five books to cover, right? Like nothing produces more need for people to change their story than the vagaries of war, right? So Woodward is always there to take these like like strategic and political questions and revise it, right? Um, But here it seems like he's dealing with a slightly – there is obviously the continuity in terms of these war makers, but it does seem like he's dealing with people who are so – So pathologically unself-aware, but also like just don't. A lot of the players he's thinking about don't actually think they're going to stay in Washington any further. Like I don't know what the fuck Rob Porter's prospects are, for example. That they don't seem to honor the implicit pact that previous White House administrations had with Woodward, which was that you wouldn't you wouldn't tell him stories that were so patently unbelievable that the reader wants to laugh, right? Like there's the last sequence in here, the last chapter or two. Has one of um, one of uh, Trump's lawyers relating his conversation with Bob Mueller? Who Bob Mueller, by the way, did not uh, consent to interviews, as far as I can tell. Um, and in this is literally a chapter and a half of this lawyer uh, of Dowd um, describing how he owns Bob Mueller with facts. <laughs> and how Bob Mueller doesn't own what he doesn't understand what's going on. It's literally a whole lot of, women. Well, but then, sir, wouldn't you agree? And Mueller's like, well, I guess you're right. And like, oh, my goodness, I don't know what's going on. And it's total, like, I sincerely doubt that happened. Right. I sincerely doubt the entire substance of the conversation was Bob Mueller apologizing to this lawyer for not knowing what was going on.
0: Which appears right? this a, a chapter and a half of apologia basically dictated by Dowd to undermine Mueller and rehabilitate his own reputation seems like it's an odd fit for the actual reality that involves Mueller and federal prosecutors utterly cleaning up in federal court so far as yet.
1: Exactly. And yet they seem to be constantly not understanding it. Here, and here's Dowd, too. Dowd ha- so Dowd has one of these sessions, it goes on for a chapter, where basically Mueller keeps on showing his ass according to Dowd. Right? Dowd is the only person we who as a source for this. Then he has a conversation with Trump, who, by the way, constantly thanks him and like, almost literally calls him the best lawyer in the world, which I'm like – I really don't expect Trump to be like – I don't know. Trump thanks – according to his lawyer, who later calls him a liar incidentally, um, Trump thanks his, that lawyer more than he has probably thanked anyone else ever in the history of time. He also has this, these interactions with Mueller with which he can sweeten the book right? because everyone wants to – it's not like Bob Woodward is going to talk about Michael Cohen, Stormy Daniels or Puerto Rico. Right. None of those all those things happen in this timeline, but he, he's not going to sell the book on that, because that actually might involve doing some like fact checking apart from like principles who I guess he meets in conference rooms or over deli sandwiches somewhere. Like I don't I don't know how his method works. But like, he clearly didn't want to exert himself in some way. Um, but this bit here, like so here's Dowd. Mr President, this is ridiculous. Oh my God, Trump said. Right? No, Dowd said. You've never truly respected Mueller. You've got really good instincts, but I've never bought into it. But now I've got to tell you, I think your instincts might be right. He really wasn't prepared. Why are we coming back here with nothing? And again, it's like, I really don't think it it just you have one has to consider how how likely is it in any way that Trump would be like, oh, my God, lawyer, you're so right. I I, I totally did. And it it just the, the obvious combination of like
0: Trump doesn't react to anyone like that.
1: Exactly, and there are bits and bit where he's, 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 he's talking. He's flying with, with across the like across the Atlantic or something in Air Force One with Porter talking about like strategic, like how he's going to goad Kim Jong Un best, right? And. Um, Rob Porter's like, well, but what's your end game, sir, here? And then Trump's like, well, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that. But it's like, it's conversational turn-taking where Trump appears to be hanging on wisdom from a 40-year-old lawyer and alleged wife-beater. And I really don't see Trump holding his attention that long, let alone being like, wow, that's really smart, kid. That's how I should do global geopolitics. It's completely nonsense. But again... Woodward just presents this as though this is what happened. now I understand implicitly a super sophisticated reader is supposed to be like, "Well, I should be concerned like have like a have like a flow chart of possible sourcing and view everything with a glass like a pine glass of salt, but most people don't have access to that type of stuff uh and so instead, this book just comes to stand in for what happened, and I think that that's it's it, it's striking when you compare it to the other books that a lot of people. There is very little in this. book. In mean, case this isn't clear, don't buy this book. I'm trying to, trying to save <laughs> people spending seventeen dollars on this book. Um, there is very little in this book that say Michael Wolf didn't transmit right. And Michael Wolf, and that's by a the book way, that much- you liked.
0: Yeah, you liked it a lot more. You write uh, in Fire and Fury, and during the subsequent press tour, Wolf luridly capitalized on the on the frisson of his burning bridges with Trump. Woodward, by contrast, seems almost plaintive on the subject. And whereas Wolfe embraced his over-the-top material with a kind of gonzo glee, Woodward proceeds with a halting, ponderous seriousness. Why is it that, that you find Wolf's approach was so much more— his tenor was so much more appropriate to the Trump White House?
1: I think tenor is the right way to look at it, right? Because, like, Wolf's book was— Number one, there was the betrayal, right? He was just sort of there. And they they absurdly let him be present for all these conversations, which he witnessed and then reproduced, right? Um, And... There was something about that sort of brazenness of self-promotion on Wolf's part, and also just, again, it's, it Wolf, like, I believe previously maybe about Sealer Killers or Newspapermen or something, but Wolf is a good writer, uh, or at least better than Woodward, and so you were like, you, there was something about the over-the-top absurdity of the whole venture that, like, yes, many of the same concerns that I have about Woodward sourcing apply to Wolf, but at least there you, you would not forget the fact that you were reading a pulp, you know, political journalism tell-all. Right? Woodward
0: and the Woodward, book, rather than elevating the, the dignity and gravitas of his sources, I mean, it got Bannon fired, right? Exactly.
1: yeah, everyone looks everyone looks like a complete asshole, right um, and, and, and Wolf gives them enough rope to hang themselves by. Woodward, by contrast, presents a book that it, this book is designed to feel like contemporary history. Woodward uses the first person a couple times um, just to share where he was in his life at various points. Um, I think maybe it was four or five times. And the first time it actually, this is, again, it's fucking iconic. It's right before the election. And Woodward is beginning to realize that maybe Trump has some sort of a shot. And he's like, I was interviewing 400 executives for, no, I was giving a lecture at an annual conference for 400 executives of a concrete firm. And I was talking about uh. presidential history. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, Christ, but so like so, like so, he's on the speaking junket again. i try trying to imagine, like, the concrete firm that employs 400 separate fucking executives. They pay God, God Woodward, Bob Woodward, like probably 10, 15 grand or whatever the hell he charges to give an afternoon talk about presidents. Uh, and and like, but but apart from that, you get these little glimpses of like, and then Bob Woodward reacted to this story, and then Bob Woodward reacted to other stories. You never get the sense that this sort of the queasy sense that that Wolf gives you, which is that Wolf is in the room and for, for a lot of things he shouldn't be. Right? Uh, Wolf is present in a way that Woodward just isn't. Woodward is either there as Bob Woodward, like authority of gravitas, or he's there just transmitting stuff as though it's observed from a God's eye view of objectivity. And there's complete porousness between, um, what Woodward's thinking? Because if Woodward does editorialize, he he really cares about national security. He has a couple of lines about how he's been deeply trusted by his sources. Right, the only real news that he makes his source is sources of the intelligence community. One of the only bits of news he makes in this actually has to do with leaks from the intelligence community that he's learned. Apart from that type of stuff, Woodward's role is basically as he's an amanuensis or a stenographer to power. Right, he just as as Hitchens put it, he just gives us this as though it's what happened.
0: And you you um, say even Omarosa's book is way better.
1: I actually – I should say Omarosa's book is fantastic. I'm not not, not like saying go out and buy it, but if you're going to read any of these books, make it Omarosa's book. Um, First, because she's hilarious. The book is actually funny. Like there there, are some great lines in it, Um, but also because her position – there's a kind of sameness to – a lot of them, to to Porter to Bannon to even like Stephen Miller who doesn't but all these people who Woodward relies upon for material in varying degrees of directness or paraphrase all are coming from fairly homogenous, read, white moneyed backgrounds and they're all essentially interchangeable on some level.
0: She's a black woman who emerged into Trump's universe by way of The Apprentice.
1: Exactly, and, and her and she's so so her own, her own position is is markedly different, and she's, and I, I, I I'm not, I don't co-sign her politics, I think she's a this guy about many things, I think she's also a cynical grifter like uh, so many of them, but I don't want to employ a doubled standard of, of discounting her, particularly since the book that she writes is much more interesting than either of, than any of the other books Trump, Trump tells, and I've read far too many of them at this point, um, because she repeatedly talks about racial difference and how she's, she comes from poverty, um, she comes actually she grew up surrounded by a lot of environmental violence. Her father was beaten to death. Her brother was shot to death while he slept, live as an adult, all sorts of horrible shit. Uh, like literally she's dodging bullets on playgrounds and stuff. Like And then went to work actually for the Gore White House and was involved with the Democrats, et cetera. Like her story is definitely unique. And so you have these sequences where she's talking with, and she's very self serving, of course. Like she also claims that she had this moral change around Charlottesville, but you know, she stuck around for a while, as did Gary Kahn, which is another story that I could tell that's kind of relevant in this Woodward book. Um, But she, there are lots of scenes where she, one has these encounters with Trump that no one else does, right? She has a conversation with Trump about what type of Trump carries, and again, it, it, she doesn't hit you over the head with it. But you're like, oh, this is a this is a narrator who has previously talked about burying, losing family members to gun violence or to violence in general, right? And so it's so overcoded in these ways. But also, like Melania Melania Trump comes up for maybe twelve sentences in passing in Woodward's book. His relationships with his children are. Um, incredibly flat. His presentation of Ivanka Trump is basically given directly from Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon paints her as just a careerist bitch. like it, there's 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 a lot of misogyny that just gets passed on by these sources uh, to Woodward and that Woodward doesn't seem to flag. Um, Omarosa, for all her uh, for all her baggage and hangups, Actually, writes a lot about interpersonal dynamics of in this in the Trump family. That she, and maybe a lot of it may be bullshit, but she at least actually has chapters on Melania and how Melania behaves, and conversations they have about Melania's clothing choices, right? now, I understand that this may not be everyone's taste, but um, there's at least some degree of psychological depth in the characterizations and in the point of view of the narrator. That's just not present in Woodward, right? Woodward is the voice of completely. He, he only inserts himself in the first person to remind you that this is Bob Woodward voice of journalistic authority, and that everything else can be treated credibly based upon that. Whereas Elmarosa is much more messy, and that at least, just trust me, the Elmarosa book is good. If you're going to read any one of these books, just read her
0: book. Before we move on to the main argument of your review, I want to make fun of Woodward's writing a little more, particularly how that writing is made worse, particularly when he is unpersuasively trying to turn the world upside down by flattering his utterly reprehensible sources. Um, I want to read from your your review. You write, Many sentences are overwrought to the point of being nonsensical. Quote, The first act of the Bannon drama is his appearance, the old military field jacket over multiple tennis polo shirts. The second act is his demeanor, aggressive, certain, and loud. And then you write, Reince Priebus, a source whom Woodward conspicuously flatters, is an, quote, Empire builder, Mohammed bin Salman is quote, charming and has quote, vision, energy, which suggests Woodward has been reading Tom Friedman columns. Jared Kushner has a quote, self-possessed, almost aristocratic bearing. Possibly the most self-evidently false detail in a book full of them. This is, of course, all just terrible. Bannon is a slob. Priebus was Trump's house cuckold before he was humiliatingly fired. Solomon, ben Salman is a vicious palace infighter and war criminal, and Kushner, I, I, it is, I mean, I didn't read the book, but it's. I believe you that is pos, possibly the most self-evidently false detail in a book full of them, because Kushner is a Joseph Campbell-level archetype of the <laughs> insufferable witch, d- rich dweeb boy.
1: It's painful, because it's, it's like... Woodward is presented with a cast of ghouls and muppets, and he wants to present them instead as world historical figures, right? <laughs> and it's very weird because, like, it's also it gets really, really weird when he's writing about generals, right? Who can't because Woodward really likes war, like he's really interested in war, and so like he's really interested in what it takes to be a man of war, to be a warrior, and so there's all these descriptions of like H.R. McMaster. And uh John Kelly or Mike Flynn, and they're all completely interchangeable. Every single general, or practically all of them, their bodies are ramrod straight. Right? They're all—it's weird, like weird physical descriptions. Where it's like he describes hr McMaster as being high and tight. McMaster is bald. <laughs> he doesn't have his, his hair is not high and tight. Like there's a weird kind of libidinal thing going on with all, all their men. It's really, really bizarre.
0: And man, they're all McMaster. described as a, erect penises. That's strange.
1: It's, it's very – there's a scene actually where H.R. Master is folding another man's underwear. I just don't buy it, but, but there's a weird scene where we learn about his humility because he's doing laundry for one of his young male aides. Like it's it's, it's, it's a – like again, we learn about – I think it's Mattis folding his his lieutenant colonel's underwear. We don't learn shit about Puerto Rico. It's never mentioned, right? The actual states of what are happening are completely erased, irrelevant, in favor of giving us little – Essentially, generic characterization of power players, right? And again, to her credit, Omarosa does mention Puerto Rico at some length, and she doesn't – her book – I'm moving copies from Omarosa, which I'm actually okay with – she describes a lot of stuff like body language between the Trump children and their parents. Right between the way that Trump and Melania interact, between how John Kelly physically moves people in his office to yell at them, to the ways in which she thinks she 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 says, which would be blasphemy for Woodward or Wolf, that Trump keeps on touching Ivanka in ways that make her uncomfortable. Right, there's a way in which again Omarosa's positionality means that she's hyper attuned to micro dramas of personal power and dominance, and that's completely that whole domain of essentially embodied power and all these differentials involving race and 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 and, and status in terms of class is just unpresent in the work of wolf uh well Wolf a little better about money but but like it's in the work of woodward like there's nothing you get a sense that these are like there are a bunch of like hulking G.I. Joe, Gray Fox soldier generals who are all like, you know, we, we may note that, yeah, like Mattis does call Iranian mullahs ragheads. But but he also has over 7000 books in his library and he jogs I'm like, oh, OK, that's great.
0: Let's move on to Woodward's central criticism of, of Trump. You write, if Trump has a foremost sin in Woodward's eyes, it's that he is a not serious person. With a characteristic fetish for matters of human intelligence and national security, Woodward faults Trump for being feckless and indifferent on matters of foreign policy, the stenographer's ultimate litmus test of seriousness. Unsurprisingly, Woodward has brought up the question of seriousness in his promotional tour for Fear, which he's hawked as a kind of wake-up call. People better wake up to what's going on, he told CBS Sunday morning. You look at the operation of this White House and you have to stay, and you have to say... Let's hope to God we don't have a crisis. One has to wonder what constitutes a serious crisis in Woodward's eyes. To take just one example, the death toll resulting from the government's botched response to the Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico has risen to 2,975, more than the number of Americans who died on September 11th, and orders of magnitude more than the 64 that was the government's official toll in the aftermath. This episode goes unmentioned in Woodward's book. What is the seriousness that Woodward wants to see in a present? And what is it that makes for a suitably serious politician?
1: I think the answer in a word is war. Part of how I'm able to sustain myself through reading these shitty books is through a sort of lighthearted, you take, I take them as, you know, like these are, this is the genre of the exculpatory political memoir or contemporary historical tell-all is millennia old, right? Like um, they go back to like the Romans were really good at this or the Byzantines like Procopius has a secret history and shit and so there's some there's some legibility in that sense not coincidentally though the most sterling examples of that genre are come from sophisticated late in imp- the of late imperial decay militarism and social breakdown right um, and when you look at a book like Woodward's or an oeuvre, like Woodward's contemporary stuff, it becomes extremely clear that these books have a far from charming, deeply bleak and distressing, barely sub Rosa agenda. And that's justifying the um glorious imposition of american te- of American military force rejection all over the world. So what that means then specifically is that for Woodward, the quintessential dignity of the office, the respect of the office that the commander-in-chief has is embodied in the executive's control over the war machine or supposed to control over the war machine. Um, and it's been very striking too how in the wake of Woodward's book, a lot of people have been like, well, it's great that Mattis was in charge. We knew that. Like, oh, thanks. Um, but here's a little bit where it's like – again, the book – you'd think is just quotes, but sometimes Woodward does editorialize. So in one of the many meetings, you can tell Woodward is very upset when Trump wants to leave NATO. And Trump and, and Woodward has a line being like, objective for like, like for Trump, collective defense was a sucker's move. And I'm like, is this coming from another? Is that, is that something some you're paraphrasing or is that your own opinion? It's clearly his own opinion. <laughs> Here's some more of his own opinions. Within the intelligence and military world, there exists what President Obama once told me are our, quote, our dark secrets. These are matters so sensitive, involving sources and methods that only a handful of people, including the president and key military and intelligence officials, know about them. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the American espionage establishment ballooned, making secret surveillance a way of life. And then later he goes on to say how he has a bunch of his sources in the CIA and elsewhere, or presumably the CIA, who have told him that um, you know we have this is, it's all you you'd have to be a real like intelligence-focused reader to pick up on some of this shit. but He's like we have secret sources in Korea and, and in North Korea, and that, Trump may, and that Trump may have jeopardized them. Like this is the tr- Woodward's true terror is the idea of. The Trump, uh, the Trump administration of Trump offhandedly revealing mil- sec- secrets that are essential to national security or jeopardizing our war plan, our capacity, our, mil- our military readiness, right, is another key term here. Um, what's really striking here, well, there are two things. Uh, one is he, he's not entirely wrong, right? That has been something that Trump has done. He has blown all these options open. He, he, he could totally, could leak classified information to, you know, they, they may well have done this to the Russian ambassador in the first months of his time in office, right? So it's not an entirely stupid thing to think about. Um, but there is, in Woodward's tone and approach, this idea that this secret core of military operations and intelligence gathering is sacrosanct, and that that's the most, that that's the most precious thing the president has, um... And it's really terrifying because there's something about that that even with the nods to 9-11, by the way, you can just also imagine this micro session, right, where like, what, like maybe like, like Woodward and, and Obama are sitting at like the Resolute desk in the Oval Office, and he's like, Obama's like, let me tell you something about secrets, Bob. And and Woodward's like, oh, please tell me about how secrets are really important. And maybe maybe they even bring in a general <laughs> who like, who's at the back of whose neck, like Bob Woodward, like tries to describe in a haircut and gets wrong. But like Woodward clearly is very into this idea of, has President Bre- Obama once told me, of having some sort of privy – he's, he's got a little bit of the halo effect of the cachet of secrecy and military power, right? Um,
0: and the weight of having to make hard choices.
1: That's exactly right. So the two things that are scary about this, are one is that we're very libidinally invested in all these ways that are like this kind of crypto-erotic fascination that's really, really fucked up. I think probably, um, but then also there's a kind of a historical character to it because at some point, for example, when it comes to the question of like preemptive strikes on North Korea or Iran, which come up several times and are frankly fucking terrifying, here's H.R. McMaster again. If Trump was going to attack, better to go early before the North improves its missiles and nuclear weapons, or before it built more. Time would make the threat greater. To those less inclined, McMaster asked, "Do you want to be? A, do you want the? Right, do you want to bet a mushroom cloud over Los Angeles over it?" And again, Woodward like notes this is this is a direct this is a direct like echo, a freaky echo of um how the, you know, this, how Saddam could have, like, if the smoking gun, if we, quote unquote, if we hadn't confronted Saddam, would have been a mushroom cloud, right? In his ability to acquire nuclear weapons. But he doesn't seem to indicate that this is necessary. He, he, he relates that. But he doesn't seem to indicate that, holy shit, maybe a preemptive nuclear strike is not a, or a preemptive conventional strike is a horrifying possibility. He sort of alludes to it, right? But, like, you, you repeatedly get the sense that... He still presents like, hey. that position
0: as the, the serious one, the one that says yeah. a preemptive strike is the responsible, serious thing to do to ensure that there's not a, a mushroom cloud.
1: This is exactly right. So like, there are a bunch of points where it's like Woodward is like very, very, clearly very concerned that Trump's going to blow up the, the Korean, the the, the, the Korean negotiation, which is entirely possible. Right. And actually one thing that does happen is that some of his advisors steal documents from Trump to prevent him from signing off on, on, on potentially blowing up trade and military agreements, which is, you know, is insane and does smack of administrative coup, if you want to call it that. Um, But there are multiple points at which Woodward expresses an almost visceral disgust and contempt for something which Trump says that are very misguided but also not wrong. Right, so at one point Trump just starts going off on like, I'm tired of being presented with being told that every decision I make is all about national security. I'm tired that all our decisions are just about national security. Now of course like what Trump may mean is that he wants to like end the meeting and go like shitpost and eat a hamburger or whatever, like that may not fit, but on some level, He's not wrong that we do far too many things because of this sort of generic opinion of national security, right? But this seems this seems to strike this seems to strike Woodward as blasphemous
0: because that's the issue that politics is supposed to end at. All the domestic stuff is up for fair debate within the the Overton window as it is currently constituted. But when it comes to the question of national security and subservience to the national security state establishment. There's no politics. There's no question about that. It's a matter of purely of confidence, of competence.
1: That, that, that's precisely right. That there's, that there's kind of like this minister of faith that needs to proceed. And like it's and you can feel how self-relevant this is for Woodward. Right. Woodward is clearly very upset that he did not get that. He did, President Obama told me about the value of secrets. Right. OK. Um, but he's very upset that Woodward that 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 he didn't Woodward wasn't given access to Trump, right? Which actually I think probably saved Woodward's ass because I actually think I don't know what he would have done with it being confronted with a source. But like he's clearly willing to print people who just lie constantly without. But the the degree to which Trump lies, I think his method would have been inadequate to, and it may be the, the best possible thing that happened to Woodward is that he didn't have access to Trump, is my suspicion. But at some point, uh, Trump says something like. Yeah, and George W. Bush was a terrible president. He was a warmonger. He wanted to be the world's policeman, and he sent troops everywhere. And again, Woodward presents this as though it's that's a damning example of Trump's philistinism. But you know, in truth, that's also not wrong. And uh, but that seems to be the ultimate blasphemy in Woodward's eyes. Like that big because of course again, like Woodward wrote four fucking books about George Bush, and a lot of them were about how what a great decision maker Bush was at war. So very simply summarizing the entire trajectory of American history as a giant exercise in <laughs> global death. Um, clearly, clearly rubs Woodward the wrong way. and means that Trump is fundamentally unserious and he may be unserious, but I don't think, I don't think there's some serious fucking psychopaths in the, in the white house. Like that becomes clear. Like it becomes very clear that Lindsey Graham is totally okay with a whole, with living in forever war. Um, that Mattis is totally okay with a disastrous debacle in Iran, uh, that H.R. McMaster would roll the dice for a whole lot of reasons, and that Trump is simply indifferent and bored. Like, that's terrifying. But the problem there is not relative or seriousness or lack thereof. It's of a, something that vastly exceeds the individual dispositions of any of the people involved, and Woodward is completely capable of dealing with that.
0: I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of the podcast that you're listening to right now. One way we keep the show up and running is by advertising books that our listeners might want to buy from publishers like Verso and University of California Press. If you yourself work at a publisher and want to advertise books on this show, or you're an author of a book that you think that your publisher should be advertising here on The Dig, please email me at daniel.denver at gmail.com. My last name is D-E-N-V-I-R. I I can say with some confidence that there is likely no other podcast out there where you can find so many people who want to buy left-wing intellectual and academic books. So please advertise with us. Thanks, and now back to the show. You argue that McCain, who is Washington's favorite Trump nemesis, is is the paragon of the sort of seriousness that Woodward so worships in his book. And you wrote a recent obituary of McCain and the Baffler, and you wrote, quote, The McCain brand of brandlessness was, at the end of the day, really just a slick repackaging of a very familiar product. What is that product, and what was McCain's idiosyncratic way of selling it?
1: So the the answer here is also this. It's one word. It's the same one-word answer uh, that I talked earlier about. Woodward's function, it's war. The single biggest through line through John McCain's policy positions, legislative advocacy, personal career, and just disposition was effectively limitless American imperial force projection anywhere in the world um there are a few examples uh for example in uh I think in Beirut in the 80s he opposed that he may have opposed uh, one or two more African interventions I think perhaps uh, in Somalia as well but these are the these are the exceptions that prove the rule the single biggest through line since the beginning of his time um, as a politician was his arguing for Americans to use either direct military force or armed proxies or just the force of the arms trade to exert dominance over territory and to fight back um, enemies and others. And in, in, in earlier on, uh, he framed that as in terms of fighting communism. Later, it became a question of, I think, so-called rogue state rollback. Um, and then it became support for the global war on terror or the surge. But there basically was not a single thing to – there's not a single major foreign policy crisis that McCain didn't see the answer to be, to be troops uh, and to be bombing. Um, and he was constantly willing to express that. He was constantly willing to give great nut quotes to reporters about that. And he was super and the Italians almost ghoulishly, right? There's some points which there's some things that he, he he made jokes about or would allude to that had a kind of relish that almost seemed macabre. But uh
0: bomb, bam, Bomb 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 bom, Iran.
1: Um or there's some video of him throwing out some World War uh some World War on terror protesters and he calls them like what is it, like like low life scum and threatens them with arrest. It's he. he you know, it, it, it's it's fitting that the last piece of legislation to bear his name is the seven hundred sixteen billion largest ever in American history defense appropriations act, right? Um, he really understood that he had a bunch of lines like, "Well, we are the um, we are not the victor, victims of history; we are the writers of it." Uh, I think is the line. Um, it, so the core of his advocacy was the, the essential dignity and seriousness and moral probity of the American military project.
0: His constancy was mostly toward being inconstant and rapidly remaking himself to better reflect the demands of his rightward sprinting Republican base, the case in point being, of course, Sarah Palin. And you write, quote, The tolerance for cocksure incompetence mixed with pandering to white racial grievances that McCain's endorsement uniquely legitimized continues to blight American politics, even if Palin herself has receded to the status of a terminally marginal political figure. If there is a direct line to be drawn from the eminence grease to the two-paid orange ghoul that is Trump, that line passes right through John McCain. I think that is so right on. And... In retrospect, it's been cast as this regrettable error that McCain made. I think he said that he wishes he'd chosen Lieberman. But I think your analysis suggests that it was, in fact, reflective of his very fundamental nature as a politician.
1: He always wanted things both ways, right? In the sense that he wanted the credit for being, again, a maverick, a loner. Uh, But, you know, you look at his actual record— uh, his his most frequent move would be to to, to stand up for something, it to fail, then him have an opportunity to, you know, try again and he'd just actually go the opposite way at this time. So he did learn. Um key examples here, for example being McCain Feingold, if you were all about his, his amazing um his amazing campaign finance legislation and stuff, right? Which was immediately ended up by Citizens United, and then he had a series of legislative opportunities to roll back Citizens United in various ways. He demurred, right? Um, to condemn Trump on on treatment of immigration, while also eluding the fact that he opposed DACA's existence in the first place, or that he backed HB 1070, the Arizona Papers Police legislation. Like, that time and again, something would happen. He would denounce it as a sign of how far we America had fallen from some sort of lofty ideals that he had superior access to, and then... That would be, you know, either be highly public views, which were often just a matter of personal peak too. Like it's hard to, to understate how much like it's just him like being resentful of individuals. Like a lot of his breaking ranks with Bush, for example, was literally he just he just didn't like Bush senior. Um and then after the that sort of virality would die down, he would go ahead and vote in favor of the thing which he just previously described as 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 a moral failure. And that's just, he did that again and again and again. And it it says something about the normative like conceptual space for American political like diversity uh at least in the mainstream that that was perceived as moderation because he just basically moved rightward slight, slightly slower than did the Tea Party, or that then did, like, Breitbart types. But he sure as hell courted them, he sure as hell fed them, I and mean, he sure as hell, like, signed off on pretty much everything they wanted. I mean, at the end of the day, like, his record of support and in favor of Trump legislation like, 85% of the things that came his way that Trump wanted he approved, right? So the idea that he's somehow a um, – what I guess we could say, and I almost want to do a Zizek voice here, is that what we're getting at is that there's – when you have someone whose actual record basically is only – He's actually this unremarkable, um, but who also becomes this obvious like sight of all of this like libidinal and the ideological energy, all this all this like energy of like what he stands for, and he becomes such a symbol. That's when you know that like you're in very deep ide- ideology. You're in very deep in- <laughs> yeah, this is pure yeah, this is pure ideology. My God, um, but it is right, and, and this is sort of what I, what I what what I argue, and I you know, I I, it, I love people who read the piece because it took a fucking year to write, but um. McCain is. I think a way, to, a way to understand McCain is as a sort of is through the lens of the discipline that you call political theology, right? Um, through through like a way of thinking about political terms and and, and, and concepts in American and, and, and political ideology of anyone but here in America specifically. But to think about ideological political concepts as being transformed theological ones, right? Um,
0: and the thing that's processing all of this this transformation that you're talking about seems like his one. Truly horrific, truly horrific suffering as a prisoner of war, as a pilot. And then two, his relentless drive to unleash the full lethal force of American military might everywhere as a politician. And those two things combined launder this ugly, messy reality in history into just this paragon of seriousness, dignity, gravitas.
1: The idea of sacrifice. Become is the axis on which this all turns, right? Um, If you look at and I break this down very granularly in the article, but if you look at the demographic representation of veterans and specifically combat veterans in American uh, in the legislature as presidential candidates, you have a marked drop over the course of the past thirty or forty years since the beginning of selective service since the end of the draft, right? And that and that the specific exposure of uh, of, of major politicians, and I'm talking here about vice president, presidential candidates, major, you know, people who, who run primaries, um, who had direct military experience and combat experience has also precipitously declined. Right? Think, for example, of, you know, George W., like, probably, you know, like, instead of flying the Texas National Guard planes, he was busy getting in trouble with, like, coke and booze. Or, um, what was done to John Kerry, where who, who he was, like, legitimately a sort of a war hero, if that's how you want to view these things, that was completely cast aside as being meaningless, right? But even then, those guys are exceptions. A lot of the other candidates for president have not been, have not served at all, let alone seen combat experience. And against that backdrop, um, you have John McCain, who not only served in the military which is you know troped as a kind of sacrifice but then was captured and tortured and please don't get me wrong i'm not endorsing the american imperial project in southeast asia um which he willingly signed up for and and was a a champion for and defended even for for many years after his, his, his capture um but that bracketing that to the extent that you can and speak simply speaking about his experiences in captivity he um followed a certain type of code in that space right he was new he was given numerous opportunities to be released and he refused to right um out of a sense of perhaps, there might be some political ambition there that's been hinted at he himself has indicated that uh, but also there was a sense of just like he hated the idea of being under anyone else's power etc it's it, it, whether or not you are entranced with the the um the specific enterprise of American military dominance in the world, there's clearly something dramatic and powerful in McCain's story in micro, right? Or at least there's there's grounds for, if you're sort of fuzzy about what the American military project entails, because, you know, you live in the imperial metropole, right, in the 48 or, you know, in in the American territories, which where McCain was born, um... You don't necessarily, you're always, your vision of the primary agents in war are American prisoners, right, which is sort of like almost a Christ-like figure and more on that in a second, but also like it's the troops, it's the soldiers, it's the people dropping the bombs, it's the people who are sacrificing themselves, not the other and frequently non-white others who are being sacrificed underneath those bombs or are getting shot with those bullets, right? And McCain's story of personal suffering it basically becomes this incredible signifier of like the ultimate sacrifice. He wasn't just willing to drop, you know, thousands of tons of bombs on Vietnam, he was also willing to molder in a dungeon while being tortured rather than go home early. A colleague and friend, Peter Lucier, who's an Afghanistan veteran and writes very persuasively about these things, L-U-C-I-E-R, and has worked very highly, has written about how there's this sort of cultic vision of veterans in American life, where where, where Americans seem to want people to be like, veterans both be high priests, but also sacrificial lambs, right? They both give themselves, but also by giving themselves, they kind of like, we get to wash our hands of complicity and they're getting killed, uh, or like what they suffer. Um, combined also with this very American, and I think you have work of people like Roy Scranton who's written about this a lot. Where it's like the problem isn't what our soldiers do; it's what they're forced to see, right? Like it's it, the, the real the real victims of war are the Americans who wage it.
0: This is something I discussed at length with uh, with Catherine Lutz, or um, I think earlier this year, or late last year, the, the, this cult of the troop, where you have troops put elevated as the Spartan super citizens. That not actually they're not elevated in real life. In real life, they are often treated like shit, and um, you know things go very poorly. But in 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 rhetorically, they're held up as these Spartan super citizens that reflects the best in an America that every American who hasn't served, as increasingly fewer Americans serve, has lost. And this is I don't know if you remember this bizarre John Kelly press conference last year mm-hmm. when he mm-hmm. was when he was. Def- Defending Trump for allegedly being incredibly rude and insensitive to a grieving widow of a soldier killed in battle. When when Kelly just asserted that that most Americans, because of having not served, had lost respect for basically everything that once made an American an American.
1: Yeah, it's, it's some straight starship trooper shit. It, it becomes a sort of like like sacrifice is such a can be such a corrosive concept right, um, particularly when you start involving logics of substitution, right? And I, I mean this in, like, the fullest theological and political theological sense, but there became a way in which, like, well, if John McCain... Of course, John McCain, you know, like, we you know, war is bad. We all know war is bad. But John McCain says we really need to do this one. And look, look, John McCain's given so much. The least we can do is, you know, give whatever it means to agree with John McCain.
0: Because his sacrifice gives him the right to... Not only narrate his own story, but because his own story is iconic of the best possible American story, he has the right to narrate american's America's story as a whole and thus play this huge role in redirecting that story's arc towards the very horrific ends that we're still living with today.
1: The locus of the story does not it, it is not the one to two million civilians who have died in the Middle East and near Asia since we began the greater um I mean, Middle East and and, and Southeast Asia since as we began, you know, um, the greater the global war on terror. It's uh, it's John McCain who had to reckon with some really difficult questions. A man who knows war, who decided that we need to do is to keep us safe. So the story becomes it's a quintessence of that of that problem where it's like it's not what it's not what Americans do; it's what we have to do. Right, which is a very imperial posture too. You can find this in the British Empire too, where it's like, well, you know, we have to do this. Like, it's almost it's a kind of like there's an added almost like a petulance when it's like, well, why aren't you greeting us with, with as liberators? We we're doing this is a real sacrifice for us to be here, right? Um, and what McCain did is because because he made like the ultimate sacrifice while also coming back from the dead. Like, there's Christ-like shit going you know, up and down in this one, um. You know, if John McCain can bring himself to say that we need to be in Iraq for a hundred years, which he said, who are you and I to do that? We didn't, sir. We weren't. We weren't ever in prison. Fuck. If John McCain says that, you know, maybe we should roll back health care. Who are we to do to, to object to that? So there's a way in which, like, his exemplary, supererogatory, socially praised, and entirely voluntary sacrifice becomes a mechanism for laundering or giving away, but also giving authority to him to make decisions where other people suffer and make sacrifices in ways that are involuntary, socially disposable, and completely unglorified and unsung. So he basically becomes a transactional locus, yeah.
0: I want to go in more on the the psychoanalytic angle that you're pursuing here, and it, it echoes a lot something that Chapo Trap House touches on all the time, which is this slothful couch potato McMansion dwelling American man imagining that they, they too, were it necessary, would instantly become heroic tier one operators who, you know, would save the week and mow down the evildoers. And you write, quote, constantly toggling between identifying with McCain as their fantasy image of themselves. And self deprecatingly worshiping him as the true hero they could never be. Most American pundits were thus able to avoid assessing McCain for what he actually was and for what he actually did, all the better to avoid confronting those same truths about themselves. McCain, for his part, nobly ratified their self flattery by letting them flatter him, which he enjoyed. Together, He and they operated in a perfect circuit of mutual self-satisfaction. The loss of this is what many in the press now mourn, since with him dies a particularly useful device, an exemplar for lying to themselves. That's fantastic, and it seems like what you're really getting at is this deep neurosis that infects an empire in late-stage crisis that projects its military power Not only through an all volunteer military that represents an increasingly small, historically small segment of the population, but also through air war and also drones, which are completely uh, abstracted from any kind of the immediacy that we historically associate with warfare. So we've got so much power, albeit in crisis, and so little glory.
1: These are really distressingly. sort of painful and in deep waters uh, to think about, I think. Um, I should say, uh, I'm here, I'm I'm probably still a little thunder from what I am writing a book about gun control and gun violence in the U.S., and this is, I'm going to draw some analysis from there and sort of share it with the world here now, but, like, that idea that you you very astutely assess in terms of this, like, the fantasy of projection of force, right, I'm over here, you're over there, I can reach out and touch you with an I C B M or a drone or a badass operator, right? Um, but I myself am safe here in the metropole, in, in the in the American Center, right? There's a world. There's a world outside that's a world of war, and there's a world here which is a world of peace, and and those two are are ontologically distinct. And I have to maintain. And it's maintaining is it by having that sort of like that that quote that's attributed to Churchill, but who the fuck knows actually said it. That having rough and ready men who are always manning the watchtowers of liberty are the precondition of our having any peace whatsoever, right? Which is a crypto fascist impulse. Dude, this is all super fascist. Um, but it's also, and this is the bit that, like, I, f- I find increasingly distressing to me as I, re- as I as I as I go back into sort of like a, the deeper history of America of gun violence specifically in America, is that this is a template of it's a it's a type it's a deeply gendered, deeply racialized vision of how power works. Um, that is uniquely well suited and uniquely a product of a. Uh, a, 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 a nation that is founded on ethnic cleansing and a, a, on a certain type of settler colonial violence and that later becomes a colonial hyperpower in its own right. Right? I think you're, for example, like, you know, uh, the, all the talk, like the American sniper is a figure. I think was talked about that too, right? Like, there's some, for me, the idea of a sniper is, um, and I, mean, I live in a part of the world where it's like you see people like driving around bumper stickers adopt a sniper, right? You can actually give money just to specifically go to snipers. And, and I've watched all these shitty, like, movies, like, you know, I like, know so there's that Ryan Felipe is in the third season of that sniper of that sniper TV series, Shooter, or whatever, where it just casually mentioned that he's killed 450 people, whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, that's normal. He's normal. He's not, he's not weird. Um, but, like, there is something about the idea that we can, the asymmetry of power relations embodied in that encounter, Right. I'm the sniper, the operator. I'm sitting in like my tree or beneath a ghillie suit. And I'm far away from my target, who nonetheless I can pinpointedly reach out and destroy, exercising maximum targeted precise violence over an increasingly absurd distance right so, so there's something about the logic there of, of this asymmetry right like there's no there's no direct body to body contact it's me looking at you through a scope you're very far away and this this is how violence happens now i'm not morally coding this in any particular way but i will say that this is there's a certain type of relationship to force embodied in this and it's um it's it's a type of we prosth- could call it a prosthetic extension Right? I'm going to reach out. We have all these wonderful tools from small, from small arms like AR-15s to drones to missiles, and we can go all the way out and wreak destruction without it ever really blowing back on us.
0: Yeah, right. it's like the this thing that happens in miniature in the operation of an individual drone strike, a particular drone strike that's then recapitulated more broadly In this fiction, that we can have empire abroad and democracy at home, that we can exercise limitless violence abroad without undermining our security at home. And the cult around the troop in general and around McCain in particular seems like some sort of effort to at least provisionally resolve the contradictions underlying those fictions.
1: Beneath these sort of hypermodern articulations of this basic desire, and here I'm referring to like the drone pilot or the operator or the person in the control room with a nuclear with a nuclear football, right? Lurking behind these sort of like. Highly, like you know, badass, sexualized, cool dudes, or increasingly, you know, you could be gender nonconforming and also do some of these jobs now, and we celebrate this as sort of a movement of progress. but, you know, who knows if it is. But um,
0: homo nationalism. Yeah,
1: it's, talk about other uh, this, is, like, this is thing here. Puar's work. I'm like, this is homo nationalism in a nutshell, right? Like, talk talk about a hard defining line in terms of like fascist racialization, where it's like you can have whatever type of gender relationships you'd like, which you know, have various social benefits, as long as you spend eight hours a day. Sitting in a special chair, flying a Predator drone, and blowing up children, and and, and herds. go Military age males, forgive me, right? Like talk talk about a really hard and fast social line between what's what's clearly core to maintaining social reproduction in in, in the Imperium, and what's in, what's 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 fairly. Um, not as necessarily core to it, but behind all these like hypermodern articulations of it is something very, very old uh, and very quintessentially American. That gets at, at the heart of a, a, a constitutive crisis, or even I would pun, and I do in the book heavily, perhaps too preciously, um, on the idea of a constitutional crisis. Right, the idea that we have a we're a liberal democracy, or at least we're supposed to be, uh, founded upon nominally universal values. But that also, at the same time, that vision of liberal universalism and emancipation is underwritten and crisscrossed by all these, uh, all these what what Lasardo called uh, exclusion clauses. All these highly particularist classes of people who don't get to enjoy those things: be they slaves, be they natives, be they you know any other, or women increasingly. But like, um, but the idea here is that. You can, what McCain symbolizes and what I think the Deep Waters has touched is the idea that you can both be a, you can, you can both be a cog in a military machine, right? But also you can still be an individual, right? Remember the Army of One ads from a couple of years back, which is a slogan that the Army regrettably stopped, stopped using, right? But the idea is that you can be complicit. You can fly that drone, you can fly the bomber, you can, be a sniper, or you can be, you know, sitting in your home just playing Call of Duty, you can have varying degrees of entanglement in this military project, but don't worry, you're still an individual, right? Just show up to pilot those things. Just just consume certain types of media in life. Right. And it, 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 I, I I I trace this back like that founding constitutional sort of problem to certain conditions of political economy and uh, social life in the early American or even pre-American colonial enterprise, right, where as opposed to, you know, European grand set-piece battles and having infantry march like martinettes, we instead have a – essentially a vision of soldiering as a – as boiling down to individual men acting either as vigilante or as, you know, so-called Indian killers, basically with rifles projecting force and claiming territory in a quote unquote, virgin continent. Right. So the idea that one of the basic paradoxical units of American sovereignty, and this goes from both the settler colonial era to the contemporary one and like this globalized world is that the individual, is, and always, always male. It's always very gendered. Like, you know, Lorenzo Ferrancini, a theorist of settler colonial studies, says that like One of the big ways you know you're doing with 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 settler colonial imaginaries is because there's a theme of regenerated masculinity. They really like that idea, like like a a renovated virility that you research in. But like the basic idea of American sovereignty is that the supposedly unmarked universal liberal subject is actually a white man who is capable at any moment of inflicting disproportionate violence on racialized or otherwise disposable others. And that that's, that that of course always is a project that's collective, right? They're always, it's always always lynch mobs, it's always, you know, like militia or volunteer soldiers or drafted soldiers. It's always collective, but somehow you still retain your individuality despite that participation. Uh, And that's, That's pretty uniquely American, I think, and uh, John McCain is, John McCain at least allowed a lot of people to reconcile or not have to face that contradiction between individuality and complicity by hanging it on this exemplary story of one remarkable individual, whatever you may think about him. And now he's gone, Uh, and we just have a coterie of variously um, sociopathic or asinine generals, uh, and uh, 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 Dunn's president, who, you know, argues with Vietnam veterans over what Agent Orange is. So the machine is just here <laughs> that, now. We that that was so
0: it. surreal. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, they were debating, like, Apocalypse Now or something. That's yeah. for He's <laughs> like, I think you. I think that's Agent Orange, sir. Uh, Napalm, sir. He's like, no, no, no. I, I think that was Agent Orange. Hey,
1: <laughs> His position, he he's he, he literally talking talking about all these things at once, right? The the, the couch warrior is telling actual survivors what uh, who are also themselves perpetrators in some way what the actual conditions, the material conditions of war are, and he's in charge.
0: An extreme exemplar of this broader neurosis caused by a nation of people who. Vicariously engage in an empire from their couches playing Call of Duty.
1: What what we're seeing is a kind of return of the barely repressed, right? There's a kind of traumatic repetition here, Uh, and of course, you know, McCain also symbolizes this too, because it's like we have one of the major features of American discourse in a lot of domains, and not just about the military, is that we have certain difficulties thinking about people simultaneously as victims and victimizers. Right, like we 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 we're very binary. We only want, want people to either be victims, which gives them a type of moral authority, or victimizers, which completely erases them. And this is independent from talking about logics of accountability or or, or, or restorative justice, etc. But just that we are very, we don't like having to think about people as both being capable of being harmed and victimized, and also of um. Capable of of inflicting tons of harms and victimization on others, we don't like to think about that. And one way that we reconcile that is because is through the space of war, right, where people, where we we just celebrate the good thing that these people do for us by by virtue of their by when they victimize other people, right? That just that that's a space in which it simply becomes good. Um, or colonization, too, is another example of this, right? There's this weird, like, in all these texts from, like, the early founding of the Republic, there are all these tense moments where it's like, oh, we really, we're so attracted to these rough and ready male settlers, and, like, but they do such horrible things, but they have to do it, right? Um, Now, in this current moment, like, I don't think it's just narrowly because we... We haven't declared war in a while. Some of the first wars that America fought were undeclared wars, right? And I think of the clearing of the West in the, in the 1790s in the Ohio Valley, for example. We never declared war there. Um, but something is, something is coming back and being given to us in a way in which the contradictions are almost impossible to, to ignore. And I think that's what people are really—that's what people are missing. That's that's part of what people are bearing with McCain, I think. And who knows? Maybe we'll find someone else to take his position. And Lord knows, he'll certainly get wheeled out rhetorically the next time we decide to go on, like you know, if we're going to like bomb Tehran or something. I'm sure we'll invoke John McCain in that process, his sacrifice, and how he would understand that we need to do it. But clearly, there's something. There's a through line, which is the, is the repetition of a particular type of violence, and it's so bad. I, it's really bad. Yeah. Group times.
0: Group One of the, the real concrete consequences of this sealing off of foreign policy from domestic political debate that the cult of John McCain and more broadly of, of troops abets is this this notion that McCain and others like him don't bear any responsibility for the rise of Trump because the context, even amongst those on the left who tend to, to rightly blame the establishment for creating the conditions for Trump's rise. Foreign policy is, is rarely a factor that's discussed. The fact that we're caught in this paranoid fever dream of an embattled empire in a state of permanent multi directional war that no one even understands anymore. This partitioning off of foreign policy as simultaneously technocratic and heroic decisions to be made by, by various serious people and, and not by the American people as a whole, I think that leads to, to analysts through today being unable to understand the role that all this war-making has played in creating the, 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 the very unsettled and disturbing political conditions that we're living in right now.
1: I think I like I I'm very materialist in my, you know, in my in my sympathies and, and, and thoughts, but like also as you, as you pointed out, like I, I also believe not just in political economy, but also in like libidinal economy in a certain uh, determinative power that's given to um, repressed desires or certain types of ideological narratives or various tropes that have a certain kind of currency and shape what people understand to be normal and acceptable behavior. Right, in addition to just sort of more concrete monetary or other incentives. And I mean, I would argue that there is and I do, you know, well when the book comes out maybe we'll talk about it, but like I think that there is a real repetition that happens, for example, when um, you know our our troops are forever at war. In you know, where we, do troops deployed in 170 countries at this point, right? More countries in the world than a, than don't have by, by 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 about a two to three, right? Have um have American troops deployed in them in one way or another at this point? Um, it, it's one of those things. I think here, it, why why I would ask then, are we so surprised when, for example, American military-aged males to use a pregnant phrase, shoot up schools or go on mass rampages in domestic spaces as well, right? It it, it seems to me to be non-trivial that at the point at which we've determined that the entire world, is that any space is capable of military violence and and needs our military intervention because of, quote-unquote, terror, that we on the home front are also experiencing a certain type of crisis of public space where individuals using military-style weapons can inflict mass casualties. A breakdown in this
0: fictitious division between the domestic, the space of security and tranquility, and the foreign, the the place of unrestrained American violence.
1: And the, and the through line through all of this is a particular – I mean, Capital is, is, is one of the major through lines here, right? When when, when that kid shot up went right, the rifle he uses is called it's an M&P, right? It's a military and police model rifle, right? Marketed as such to kids – well, not the kids, but the other, though the a lot of them do actually wind up. Like, you can get a lot of these guns in various games. Like, you can log on to, like, you know, Battlefield of Call of Duty or whatever and actually, like, you know, purchase it with in game currency or whatever. But, like, I don't – I, I think a lot about you, the interview that you did. It was so fantastic with Nikhil Pal Singh about this too, where it's like, this country is not very old, right? Um, and the body count is, is absurd, is world historically high. Uh, and the you know when you consider that and, and look at our more recent history, it's it's pretty tra- frightening how. Short-term, our memory is in that we see these new events as 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 radical new developments, when in fact they're pretty clear repetitions of stuff that's happened beforehand. And there's something uniquely troubling about the Trump moment, and I think that's a tie a bow on our previous conversation, uh, where it's like the the domain of of memory seems to grow even shorter, right? I, my, my 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 wife showed me a wonderful line from Barbara Kingsolver, which is like, I'm gonna. Butcher, but it's that America is a nation in love with forgetting, um, and I think I think I think I think about that every day. I think it's it's only getting truer, and part of the fixation on individual figures like Trump and even like McCain too, in different ways. I think they're both two sides of a similar coin. Is all about focusing on individuals in a very short-term focus, right, as a news item, as a news cycle player, as a character in a certain type of short-term drama, precisely to erase the the actual world historical stuff that's happening and that just continues to happen in this almost inevitable and, 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 and uh, in a brutal way. It's, it's pretty horrifying to watch in slow motion or even sped up rapidly as fast as your newsfeed takes. Wow.
0: Well, on that cheery note, Patrick Blanchfield, thank you very much.
1: It's always a pleasure to to be depressing with you. Thank you so much.
0: Patrick Blanchfield is a writer and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book about gun control and gun violence, entitled Gun Power, Breaking the Cycle of 500 Years of American Violence, is out from Verso sometime next year. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the union of the working classes of the different countries must ultimately make international wars impossible. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice, but sometimes not. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment and leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please, make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash thedig, and make a monthly contribution to keep this show going. Even a few bucks is a big help.